this week on the Back Table Podcast. We as interventionalists, it is in our DNA to figure something out for those patients. And, and so we're in that process. And so I think as the field grows, that those eight people will become 11 people and then it'll become 13. And then, you know, Jack Jennings will start to not recognize people in the room, which will be, <laughs> that'll be exciting. And ultimately, I think that the field will blossom really nicely because there's just so much, there's so much work out there that just has an unbelievably instantaneous benefit for patients for function and mobility. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your home for all things interventional and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Backtable.com. Now a quick word from our sponsor. One of the biggest challenges clinicians face is not related to devices or techniques. It's the workflow. For conditions like aortic emergency, PE, and stroke, outcomes are impacted because it takes too long for treatment decisions to be made and for patients to receive therapy. Viz AI leverages artificial intelligence to coordinate care and improve workflow and is trusted in over 1,000 hospitals across the U.S. and in Europe. The platform uses AI to detect disease, provide access to high-fidelity imaging and patient information, and allows you to communicate securely through the HIPAA-compliant communication tool conveniently on your phone, desktop, or within the radiology workstation. No more asking the ED to send you a grainy picture or making countless phone calls to activate your teams. Visit viz.ai to learn more. And now back to the show. This is your host, Jacob Fleming, and today... We've got a great session with two very special guests, interventional radiologist Tony Brown and orthopedic oncologist Daniel Lehrman. Gentlemen, thanks for your time and welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Thank you. So we have, over the last few months, been diving more deeply into musculoskeletal aspects of interventional radiology, uh, of course, an area where there's a lot of development. And uh, I think nothing really typifies this more than the practice y'all have built up over the last few years. And we really look forward to delving into that today. Before we dive into that, I would like it if each of you could just talk about your respective practices and your backgrounds as well. So just your training and your origin of interest in musculoskeletal oncology. So Dr. Lerman, if you wouldn't mind. Happy to. So I'm an orthopedic oncologist. So I did orthopedic surgery residency for five years. I then did a fellowship in oncology. Most of those are one-year programs. I did two years because I did a year of basic science research, giving rats Ewing sarcoma and saving none of them. I did my fellowship at Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City, which was an amazing experience and a great facility and really uh, has a large encatchment area for sarcoma and kind of musculoskeletal oncologic disease. While there, I have a lot of exposure to collaborative surgical interventions. So we did a lot of work with general surgeons, plastic surgeons, and we communicated regularly with our interventional radiologists, but really never did any procedures with them. During my fellowship, my mentor during fellowship, his name is Laura Randall, who's an incredible individual and is now chairman at UC Davis. He had us do our own radiofrequency ablations as part of the training experience. And also, I think as kind of just to have ownership of the patient of that process. So for, you know, pediatric or really any osteoid osteoma, for example, we would do our own kind of CT guided RFAs, which was at the time interesting, but it was kind of like a head scratcher of an event. Like, what am I really gaining here? What am I learning here? I don't see myself doing this in practice because of the amount of time it sets up and just how much of an outlier it is compared to my own skill sets. But really like so many things, as he's Mr. Miyagi, I kind of figured out the brilliance of that approach of coming into my own practice. And, and not that I am going to obviously consider myself having the skills to be an interventional radiologist or a musculoskeletal interventionalist, but having dabbled in that, had some exposure to it, it really allowed me to kind of talk the talk a little bit or understand what's actually happening in the IR suite and with my our colleagues. So that was training. That was great. I started my practice at University of Maryland. It was um, there for two years and then understandably moving from Salt Lake to Baltimore wasn't the most, wasn't the greatest move domestically. So therefore we then found a great opportunity in Denver and have been happy to be here. So I've been here for almost six years now and I'm at the Institute for Limb Preservation, which is Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center, which is a multidisciplinary kind of limb salvage group. We do a lot of orthopedic oncology, 
we do infection, trauma, kind of any limb salvage need, and we work with our plastic surgeons, our infectious disease colleagues, what have you. So our institute is very collaborative and multi-D in its thinking. And then so when I had a very enthusiastic and young interventional radiologist who wanted to meet with me and tell me what interventional radiologists could do for me, I was kind of open to that experience. I mean, joking aside, I'd been in town for about six months, so I considered myself, I mean, I was very new too, and I was introducing myself around as well. So when our office manager said, oh, there's an interventional radiologist who wants to come talk to you about what IR can do for MSK oncology, my reaction was, I know full well what IR does for MSK oncology. Like, I get it. I've worked with IRs my whole career. There's nothing new here, but I'm open to meeting him, happy to meet him, and like, just to be a nice guy. Tony had a very kind of standard IR presentation for about 90% of it. And then the last slide or two, he showed me images that I'd never seen before. And that was essentially cannulated pelvic size screws in non-conventional corridors that in orthopedics, where we're trained to put in perk screws through the sacroiliac joint, maybe in the anterior column now, these screws were in places I'd never seen. And so that was the wow moment to me. I wish he kind of just jumped ahead of those two slides, but I was willing to, you know, the first 30 minutes, whatever. <laughs> but that was really the aha moment. And I said, whoa, what's going on here? What is this? And you've got my interest. And that was kind of the beginning salvo that Tony kind of showed me. And that was exciting. But before diving into that further, Tony, why don't you kind of do your intro and then our origin story can continue. Fantastic segue, Danny. I appreciate it. So I'm your standard interventional radiologist. My residency was at the University of Colorado. I'll drop a few names just as, as far as the people who were significant in my training. The uh, gold medal winner from the SIR last year, Jan Durham, and then uh, Chuck Ray were kind of the early major influence in my practice in me developing into an interventional oncologist. But that was, that was for the most part, they really pushed towards hepatic interventions, kind of all the things that IR was really, really pushing on at that point. And I had always, when I was in medical school, always had kind of a lean towards orthopedics in general. I thought when I was in med school, thought I was going to become an orthopedic surgeon, but then I realized I just don't have the upper body strength to be able to, to handle big, big hammers and everything like that. I just wires and catheters just fit better in my hands, I think. <laughs> and so um, I landed in IR, but always had an interest in musculoskeletal intervention. And then that weighed heavily in my decision to land at the Medical College of Wisconsin for my fellowship, where my ultimate mentor there, Sean Tutton, was really one of the individuals that I credit as being a thought leader and a true developer in the space of minimally invasive percutaneous fixation and stabilization. He took it to a whole new level. I think, I think people had dabbled in, I mean, People have been putting cement in weird places for a long time in IR, but actually taking it to something where you could create stability in a pathologic pelvic fracture, that was where, that was kind of where Sean's mind was. And when I was a fellow, we were exploring doing that in, in CT and had thoughts of doing it in fluoro and everything. And so he was, he was really my jump off point training under him as my, as my mentor when I was a fellow. And then. After fellowship, I, I stayed in Milwaukee for a year and worked with a colleague of Danny's and an orthopedic oncologist and kind of tried to start building a practice of musculoskeletal oncology in particular, not necessarily just musculoskeletal intervention, because those two are really different. You have musculoskeletal intervention, which largely focuses on pain, degenerative disease and things like that, whereas musculoskeletal oncology is cancer-associated pain and instability of, of various places, mostly pelvis and spine, right? So you get a lot of ablation, you have a lot of cement fixation and things like that, plus the pelvic interventions, which is, which is really what I try to develop. So then, as Danny indicated, moved to Denver just one year out of fellowship. I was brand new, he was brand new. I think I predated Danny in Denver by a couple of months. And, but it had... September of 17. <laughs> I was August. Shit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I beat you. Okay. Got you beat. <laughs> so I'd had early success with my private practice in Milwaukee where, where we had done a couple of percutaneous fixation cases. I had worked with an orthopedic trauma surgeon there and I felt like it was doable. The question I had in my mind that was, what is the feasibility of doing these procedures outside of an academic center? Which is, I think what's a little bit unique about what Danny and I do is that we're fully private practice physicians who do what amounts to an academic institution procedure. 
And so I sought out Danny because orthopedic surgeons are not hard to find. There's usually less than four in a metro area. And he was brand new. And I thought all 90 minutes of that presentation were fantastic. I mean, I thought, I thought the alcohol sclerosis <laughs> I showed you was, was valuable. And then we really got into a discussion when I showed him those pictures of where we had managed to put in cannulated screws in non-traditional orthopedic corridors in order to fixate a pathologic fracture of the pelvis. And that really sparked Danny's imagination. In that, like a week later, he sent me like the most disastrous case that I could. It was a completely obliterated acetabulum. And I felt like he was calling my bluff at that point. He was like, okay, right, hot big guy, show like, me what you yeah, got. Yeah, exactly. You said you can do this. And I mean, I, I remember that vividly because the truth is if it was something like typical or something that was manageable from our routine tool, I probably would have just done it, right? But I had just had this meeting with you and this was an 84 year old female who had no known primary. She was bed bound, found out to have a primary lung mets to the like right hemi pelvis and her posterior column was completely eroded. And usually we use that for our stability. She had no meaningful anterior column. She, so she had simply had like a, you know, floating ischium and inferior acetabulum. And again, she's 84 and was rather geriatric 84. So. I didn't have the enthusiasm to do some massive pelvic reconstruction with implants that we call cages and augments. Sure, we could, but Tony had just showed me, hey, I can fix these things minimally invasively. So I said, okay, let's see what you got. But I think I showed that to you at the, can we do this? And yeah, and you were honest and said, that's pretty bad, but we could try it. Is there anything more relatable though, as an interventional radiologist, you know, that's probably your experience. I'm guessing Tony is just that in training, so, so often you get these very complicated cases for the, the so-called no option patient. And I see this in the pelvic screw and cementoplasty cases is that these are for patients who really don't have a good surgical option otherwise. And so I love that story about how y'all got started with that first case. So how did it go from there? And what, what were kind of the initial hurdles getting this off the ground? So to segue off that a little, Jacob, I had a mentor and fellowship. His name's Kevin Jones. He's still at Huntsman. He said that orthopedic oncologists' true value to healthcare is that they're just willing to do things other people aren't willing to do. He's like, listen, right. we don't have any amazing skill set. Like the dissections we do, general surgeons could do that. The reconstructions we do, an arthroplasty guy could probably, you know, could do that. We're just willing to do it. And really nobody else is. So we as orthopedic oncologists often function as kind of the garbage men of orthopedics where we get sent the disasters and the shoulder shrugs and said, well, what can you do with this? So it was a total breath of fresh air and it has been a joy to collaborate with Tony because he has a similar mindset. And as you said, you guys are used to being stuck in that kind of same situation. And literally there are multiple times where we end a conversation by saying, listen, well, I don't think there's any other option here. What else are we going to do? And most of the time it worked out and that's invigorating and it's a thrill. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I love that because, you know, we get a lot in IR talking about the IR cowboys. And I think in reality, a cowboy kind of has a negative connotation, but I think there is, you know, an appropriate aspect of that. I think that most interventional radios are very thoughtful, kind of, you know, wanting to do the right thing for the right patient and do it safely. And our, that's where our skill set really comes in handy. And then, so I really love hearing, it sounds like the orthopedic oncologists are kind of the cowboys of orthopedics in terms of, hey, willing to push the envelope a little bit because otherwise there's not really anything to be done. So it's a perfect Yeah, I mean, match. both of our fields are rather, both of our fields are rather new in medicine. I mean, orthopedic oncology since the kind of mid eighties, anybody's been thinking about it. So kind of my generation has had the path tried and true by the guys who were recently retired. But I mean, they were blazing trails not that long ago. And you guys probably even younger as far as the evolution of medicine and what IR has been doing. So absolutely, you know, people who were inventing procedures, inventing surgery. So the concept doesn't seem that radical. And obviously with new surgeries and new procedures become new problems. But what's fun for me in this space is that the risk reward ratio, I think is easily in the favor of the reward because the downsides of this procedure in my world, like it's a shoulder shrug from a convalescence or recovery perspective. Like, even if I don't make you any better, like, yes, I put you through a procedure that would be unfortunate, but 
not as morbid as, as what I'm usually stuck with from a surgical intervention perspective. So I have a lot of confidence or kind of bravery in trying these things because I know Tony's going to keep me safe because of per. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great perspective to hear from the surgical side. And I think as interventional radiologists, a lot of times we feel like, okay, we have this good option and everything like that, but we always lack in a little bit being able to see it from the surgeon's perspective. I feel like the more we're able to do that, the more of a fruitful relationship that we can have. And obviously it sounds like y'all have really gotten to that. So tell us about after that first case, the acetabulum, how'd that case go? And then what were subsequent steps from there, getting things off the ground? Yeah, I think the first case we did, what is now in the literature is now referred to as the tripod confirmation of screw fixation, which is anterior posterior column of the acetabulum, and then a posterior anterior ilium screw with cementoplasty. Of course, you got to have the cement. Yeah, we'll get to that. You don't, but I don't even think I did an ablation in that procedure. And I think it took us like seven hours to do that procedure. And we did like 11 cone beam CTs and we had no idea. We essentially, we were learning the procedure together in the hybrid operating room. And it was, I credit Danny with the fact that he understood kind of the front end of what we were undertaking there, because anybody who I think anybody who wasn't Danny would have said, I cannot possibly spend this amount of time doing this procedure going forward. And they probably wouldn't have stuck with it, but he understood what we were working on there, I think. And I think understanding that, that you have, you potentially are creating an option for the no option patient. It was just exciting on the front end and seeing that, seeing the theory of minimally invasive fixation actually work was incredible. And so the patient, she did, as I recall, Danny, she did well, pain was better, but subsequently degenerated her actual femoral head. So she did, her joint was essentially unsalvageable. And so what we had done is we did a tripod fixation of her acetabulum and given her that foundation back, but the joint had become useless because of the previous erosion of, of the acetabulum. And flash forward to today, what we would do is we would reconstruct that acetabulum from a foundational perspective. And then Danny would do a very simple total hip arthroplasty subsequently, and the patient would be kind of whole after that. And that's the way that we manage those patients now. And from an interventionalist perspective, that to me is an incredible, it's like a superpower. It's taking a skill set that I don't have, but it's at my disposal for the treatment of these patients because of the collaboration with Danny. So interventionalists, I think interventionalists have this historical, I mean, I think there's interventionalists out there that'll, they'll put cement in anything, right? And cement is a great tool in the palliative management of pelvic pathology and lytic metastatic disease and everything. But there is a defined ceiling to the efficacy of cement and you actually need true fixation. And then beyond true fixation is is the joint viable? And if the joint's right. not viable, now you have to reconstruct the joint. And we have the capability to do all of that because of collaboration. And so if in these patients who, you know, I specifically think about these patients with prostate cancer, breast cancer, these diseases that we, with current medical therapies, that we have the ability to turn these into chronic diseases that patients live for decades with, but they're debilitated either by the cancer or by the treatment from the cancer, those patients have a long outlook and just a little bit of cement into an eroded, useless joint is not going to be a sufficient option for them. They need a true reconstruction. And for those patients, we have a good answer with good fixation and true joint reconstruction. Yeah. So Tone, I think what you hit upon there is critical and worth just stating again, it's that our medical oncology colleagues have done such an amazing job of turning metastatic carcinoma into a chronic medical problem that all of a sudden we have patients with metastatic bone disease who are living for years. And we in the orthopedic oncology space struggle with that somewhat. And we're kind of behind the eight ball and working to catch up on managing people with these issues long-term. So the population we're treating now is probably not one that existed too much longer before, because if their metastatic disease was that advanced, they probably succumbed ultimately to their underlying oncologic process. But with that not being the case anymore, it's really a new patient population, and this interventional musculoskeletal oncology is, seems like a really a, a relatively new space that really is blossoming. So 
what was interesting is that Tony kind of gave me the ability to put fixation anywhere. And some of the images that I saw looked really good, but some of the images that we had looked at before showed respectfully kind of a lack of understanding of the biomechanics of the pelvis, because in orthopedic surgery, we talk about that a lot, particularly in orthopedic trauma. So it was fun to be able to talk with Tony about saying, listen, that's an interesting implant. That's an interesting device you have in there, a nice cement utilization, but can we put something over here, put something over here to really kind of stabilize the pelvic ring? Because an orthopedic kind of trauma literature has spent decades thinking about traumatic pelvic fractures, which certainly are different than pathologic, but taking that knowledge, taking that thought about what gives pelvic ring stability, what do you need to have stability of the posterior column of the, of the pelvis, anterior column of the acetabulum, and then really the pelvic ring. What are your posterior structures doing for you? How are they augmenting anterior stability? So all of that was kind of interesting to think about again and applying kind of orthopedic trauma principles to this problem. And we had been doing cases for probably a year and a half or so before I'd seen a presentation on it at our society, our musculoskeletal tumor society. Dr. Francis Lee, who's at Yale, was the first one to present kind of percutaneous pelvic stabilization in our space, which was great to see. And he used the technique that essentially we were using. There were some things that he was doing a little differently than us. That was great to see many things the same, but the fixation strategy was different at that time. He was take, bringing kind of screws in from the iliac wing, bringing them down into the supraacetabular space for kind of supraacetabular lytic lesions. And then he and I have since, and many people have since kind of talked about pelvic ring stability, acetabular column reinforcement, the tripod construct that Tony references was in a paper in JBGS, which is Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. I think out of Einstein was the group that published that. And that was really a more common construct we used for periacetabular disease. But the fun thing of this is we could fix disease anywhere. I mean, with Tony's know-how and the imaging technology, I mean, we have one of the, our earliest cases was a guy in his thirties who had metastatic colon to his pubic body. So he was a former Marine and he was crutching around because he couldn't put any weight on his ipsilateral leg because he just had sharp stabbing pain into his groin because his whole pubic body was gone. And we put a screw into the superioramus, screw in the inferioramus, and Tony cemented, gave him a cement pubic body. And he was out, I mean, he left the hospital the same day. He was standing up paddleboarding in two weeks, which is crazy. But I don't think about putting screws into the inferior ramus. Like we don't, inferior ramus is really barely a structure in, in our world. But the ability to do that was empowering. Talk about a superpower. And that's why this collaboration started and works well, is that we definitely have a perspective that overlaps, but yet does not duplicate each other, right? They augment each other nicely, whereas we share a lot of the, obviously the goals but I can't do what Tony does and Tony respectfully can't do what I do as well in isolation. So it's really doing it together. And it's also trust, trust that we've built up over this time. But I mean, when you're real time in there, throwing implants or screws into weird parts of a weird bone, and there may not be your typical bony landmarks to rely on. It's nice to have another, I mean, for me, I make a joke. I'm like, dude, it's amazing having a radiologist in the room here, reading these full pros with me real time. Because usually I'm just kind of stuck reading some sea arm images by myself. You know, I was like, wow, I got a radiologist right next to me who's like, who got eyes on it too. So it's definitely was comforting from that perspective. And especially when you feel like you're a little out there ahead of the curve. And I'm not saying that in, a, in an aggrandizing way. I'm saying that in a liability way, just for comfort. Like what we're doing has become more and more routine, which is great. But when we were doing it in the beginning, it definitely was out there. And I still think our constructs are probably more aggressive than most that I've seen in my colleagues who've presented stuff. And they're aggressive because I have Tony as, a, as my comfort, like security blanket, essentially. And I think we trust each other with our eyes real time to say that's, that's going to be okay. And that's a good spot or that's not. And let's back up. Yeah. Fantastic. I love that you brought up the complementarity of the skill sets. And like you said, in orthopedic oncology, it's nothing new to have interdisciplinary collaboration. I know y'all work with plastics all the time, sometimes even vascular surgery and different things, just depending on where it is. And it's very similar to IR in that way. I like that what you got at alluded to the fact that you two having these complementary mindsets and skill sets allows you to think about problems differently in a way that you, you wouldn't individually, either of you, 
And so being able to put a screw basically anywhere you want it obviously opens up a lot of new possibilities. But to get back to your point about biomechanics, I'm, I'm really happy you brought that up. I'm a big nerd about biomechanics. I find it fascinating. And I think it really is crucial that the interventionalists who are getting into this space really do understand very well the biomechanics and why put a screw there, why not, you know, why does cement work here versus why, you know, doesn't really make sense in this context. And so, like you said, yeah, there's the classic interventional rate. Yeah, we can put cement anywhere, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so getting into the actual tensile strength and compression is where the fixation really comes in. So the, the idea that you can basically bring your understanding of biomechanics together with Tony's understanding of precise image guidance. I mean, that's just the epitome of collaboration, I think. It's a great share. And, and I'd be remiss to say that also the collaboration works because it solves a problem, right? It solves a clinical problem. Like we said, these patients are Nobody has anything else they can do with them. In my training in residency fellowship, a lot of these patients were kind of shoulder shrug patients. You have a patient with sacral ala osteolysis bilaterally with bilateral sacral ala pathologic fractures. We would shrug our shoulders and we'd say, after radiation, that's what all we got, right? So the fact that I could stop shrugging my shoulders and say, I can, I can help you, that motivated the collaboration. That makes a six hour, seven hour case while painful, makes it tolerable if you could take somebody who's bed bound and make them ambulatory. I mean, we do six-hour operations to save somebody's life. And I would do a six-hour operation to take somebody who's bedbound and have them walking with a walker. I would do it. Now, it's nice that we have found some efficiencies in that, like anybody with a learning yeah. curve. But the invigorating thing is, is solving a clinical problem for which I had no answer before. And then as far as overlapping knowledge and skill sets, specifically biomechanics, I am not a biomechanics expert. I had co-residents who had their PhD in biomechanics and were biomechanical engineers before they went to orthopedics. I mean, that's how heavy the field is for certain people. But I did pass my boards and there is some of that on the <laughs> boards. So we talk about cement. We talk about how cement, you know, it's great in compression. It's horrible in tension, right? You talk about the vertebral bodies. A vertebral body is certainly, when it gets to kyphoplasty, is seeing a compressive force. Right? There's really no stress through or shear forces through a vertebral body for the most part, right? So, and then taking that same concept and applying it to the pelvis, that's where things literally fall apart a little bit because the pelvis is just so much more complicated from a biomechanical perspective and there's much more shear and strain on the pelvis and, and not straight compression. And so that's when I think that's when screws help us and screw spanning defects augmented by cement is now working for many people around the country and it's great to see it. So what, what was your experience with kind of the early cases? Did you find yourself learning a lot of lessons very quickly in terms of how you wanted to approach these cases and talking about efficiency as well? How did it go in the beginning and how long before you realized, okay, we've, we're building up momentum on building this thing? So these cases, oh, when we first started doing these, it was, you know, I'm, and I'll talk about it from my perspective. I mean, the Imaging was a real problem for me to begin with because we had all the tools. We had the same tool back then that we have now. It's just, we did, I didn't trust them initially. And I didn't trust us to be able to manage procedurally what the imaging was offering us. So we did these cases in a hybrid operating room using a GE system. So the GE system has a function called needle assist, which most interventionalists use, I think on Siemens, it's called eye guide. And so it's a, it's essentially an a fluoroscopic overlay that you put on the patient that says stick needle here, right? So the, the GE system had some limitation to it in that if you move the patient, the little red screen that was overlying your bones is now not where it used to be in the patient. And you can see that. So we had to develop kind of a team of people that would, that we had one person that was literally there and their only job was to move the red screen to follow the bones as Danny with his giant orthopedic arms was moving the patient all over the table. So we had an entire person that all their, their only job is to move the red screen and, you know, is just chase Danny as he's doing these procedures. And so that was an, that was an, a critical portion of the procedure for us, because if the overlay didn't match the patient, then we were kind of lost in these massive lytic lesions because there was no fluoroscopic landmarks to go to. So we were literally following an, an augmented line. And if we didn't have it, we were, we were toast. And if I didn't trust 
you know, so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking of traversing nerves when we're doing transiliosacral screws across both neuroforamen with erosion into the neuroforamen. And I'm thinking if we put a 7.3 millimeter fully threaded screw across S1, this patient's going to be in a, in a world of hurt, literally. So I would have us stop the procedure and I would get a new cone beam CT, or we would use one of the other applications on the hybrid OR system to try to confirm where we were so that I could guarantee safety during the procedure and have us have a good outcome subsequently. What happened over time is Danny and I both got more comfortable with all of our both traditional fluoroscopic landmarks and non-traditional fluoroscopic landmarks. We got better at using the augmented overlay system and we developed a trust in both our process as well as the imaging. And so, you know, that nine hour or it's that seven hour case that we did initially with, I can't remember with nine or 11 cone beam CTs is now a single cone beam CT. And we're usually done within an hour and a half for a tripod type fixation of an acetabulum. So, I mean, some of it is just repetition and overall comfort, but the technology ended up being huge once we kind of learned how to wield it in that space. Yeah. So I'd say the, the image technology to your point tone, you're so good at it. So down, even I understand it a little bit because you've explain it in small words, which is nice. But what also took the learning curve is the steps of the procedure, just from a totally like pragmatic perspective. Like Tony you introduced the concept to me of using bone trocars to get starting points. And in orthopedics, we don't usually do that. We just throw like a guy wire on the bone and hold it and hope we're going to be close. <laughs> but because we're making throws that are 15 centimeters, 18 centimeters for some of these screws, right? Our starting trajectory has to be really right on. So, I mean, Tony handed me a bone tro car, which I like kind of scoffed at, but now I use it and love it. But then figuring out what bone tro car we could use and then what guide wire can fit through that, when to take it out, when to advance our screws, when to inject cement through the screw perk, when to inject around the screw. And still there are huge, there is huge opportunity for instrumentation advances for a procedure like this. And so that technology is not there and we would all like it to be there. And that would help with efficiency and reproducibility of the procedure itself. So part of our learning curve was figuring out just what pieces kind of literally fit with what pieces out of his kit and out of my kits and how we can make it work together. And then there's efficiencies certainly in the procedure, just with the steps of, of how we do things and just like you learn anything. Yeah. To your, to your point, Danny talks about unknowns and that's that in my mind, there's, that's the exciting thing about where we're at with this procedure right now, because it does not end with screws and cement. In fact, I ultimately, I don't think screws and cement is the answer. So, you know, from my perspective, looking at these patients, a lot of times you can see in retrospect, I look back at a patient, I'm like, I would have liked if we could have gotten better local tumor control of their metastatic disease before we landed those implants, because potentially maybe their disease outraced construct our fixation. And, you know, we had a recent case where a patient, we did a fixation on a patient and they came back and the cancer had eaten our construct. And so better local tumor control, be it ablation or whatever, embolization, ablation, using our radiation oncology colleagues to make sure that we have good local tumor control either before or after our fixation. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, we typically rely on, I mean, in orthopedic oncology, we rely on radon to get us oncologic control for metastatic bone disease. And we live in respect of that relationship and that partnership with them because without them, local disease progression will destroy our construct. So, so I rely on that heavily and we treat our pelvic patients. They've either had radiation recently or they're going to have radiation recently. So to me, it's, it's symbiotic. Now, what was interesting about these, a few particular cases and, you know, Tony has relied on them less because you've been ablating things forever. So you don't feel the need. You don't need them as bad as much as we do, but we do. But when a disease progresses through radiation, it's really humbling. Absolutely. Yeah, it gets back to that kind of no option patient scenario. And so to the point a moment ago, the need to constantly improve this technique and the devices we use to do it rather than, you know, it's great to have the ability to kind of cobble together whatever is in your two respective toolkits, but having kind of more standardized approaches and obviously the local control, like you said, and see how that'd be extremely humbling. I do want to hear about, tell us a little bit about how the program is going right now. You know, roughly how many cases have you done and 
How frequently are you collaborating on these cases? I would say, I mean, Danny keeps a better uh, a better log than I do. Have we done we've have we done over a hundred cases, Danny? Mm, I think we're ninety one. Okay, I bet ninety two today. Did you? Okay, yeah. I can't wait. So I would say the the thing about this procedure is that within our own community, I know there are patients that we are missing because this is so non-traditional that I don't, it's not written into most people's paradigms. And so until we have treated a patient that comes from a, from that radiation oncologist or from that oncologist, I don't think they really understand what this can mean to those patients. Because most of the time, those patients, these patients are, they've been radiated, they have pain, they lose their ability to ambulate. And that's pretty much it because they're sent to a standard orthopedic surgeon who says, sorry, I don't have anything for you. So the outreach portion of this is really kind of the, the limiting factor. We, you know, Danny uh, has been incredible in his outreach. He was recently in a state adjacent talking about this with various colleagues in the medical community, trying to get the word out so that these patients have an option. And then, you know, across the country, I know that if you're not in the immediate region surrounding Metro Denver, this procedure is probably not an option for somebody who has this problem. So adoption of this procedure is, I, I think, ultimately is going to benefit these patients who are that no option group of patients actually have an option. It's just not in their community. Absolutely. And what I admire about what y'all are doing is, Tony, you've brought in this very specific skill set that I, w- I would say that Sean Tutton was was obviously one of the very first people in the world and and definitely the country to bring that here. And he has been sought out as a mentor by many people. And yet the proliferation of these techniques outside of academic centers and even within academic centers has been pretty slow. And so I love that you two are bringing that into the community level. And I know you had spoken before about kind of the challenges of going regional and kind of increasing the catchment. But I hope that we'll start to see more of what y'all have accomplished out in different communities, because not everyone can go to MD Anderson or Sloan Kettering to get these things treated. And a lot of patients do that and go across the country, but it's just not, it's not an option. And I'm assuming that most of the patients you treat are directly from the area and love to hear about the state adjacent practice building. I think that's crucial, but I'm assuming most of these patients that you're seeing are probably coming from relatively close in the Denver area. Yeah, Denver. I mean, we we have a decent catchment. We've gone several states adjacent and and whatnot, but I was yeah, the vast majority are from uh from in town. I mean, I think I think one of the big issues here is I think people listening to this, particularly the interventional radiologists, I think the skill set lends itself nicely to an orthopedic surgeon. I feel like orthopedic surgeons have this would be something if, if an orthopedic oncologist out there is not doing this yet, I think this, this would be something that would be of great interest to them. For the interventional radiologists out there, Jacob, you and I both know that when you go to the MSK sessions, the MSK onc sessions at our meetings, it's a lot of the same people in the room because the overall, it's a, it's a young field. MSK interventional oncology is a young field and there's not a lot of people that are doing it aggressively yet. So if you're an IR who wants to do this, and you didn't have the benefit of Sean Tutton as your mentor, which is a huge head start for me. And I get that, you know, it's like, how can I get to the place where I'm doing these procedures? Well, I mean, it's a stepwise fashion. I would not say that some guy who's only done a balloon kyphoplasty should go to an orthopedic surgeon and say, hey, we should start doing pelvic fixation together. I would say, get the referrals for start doing sacroplasty, start doing sacroplasty so that you start to understand the pelvis and then start trying to pick up bone RFA because once you start doing bone RFA, people, you're going to get that referral for the pubic symphysis radiofrequency ablation that is associated with pain, right? And that pubic symphysis radiofrequency, then in that case, you're going to have to figure out how am I going to get that needle in there and what angle am I going to have to do to get into the pubic symphysis and get that ablation probe into the superior pubic ramus? And then am I going to stabilize it with cement? And you'll have to think about the mechanics. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's a great stepwise fashion that you can get yourself into high-end musculoskeletal oncology procedures that will work its way up to the point that you're calling, well, hopefully the orthopedic guys are calling you and asking if you would be willing to help them, which is something that we've seen in a couple of institutions around the country, or you're calling them and saying, hey, here's how I can be of benefit to you. 
And, you know, I'll tell you from my perspective, there is nothing more IR than one of the cases where I go in on a, like a metastatic renal cell to the pelvis and I have to do a, a pre-op embolization. So I do a pre-op musculoskeletal embolization of a tumor and then I microwave ablate it to kill the tumor. And then we perk fixate it all in the same, in the same setting, the same case. I mean, it's literally all the best parts of IR in one case. Yeah. It's quintessential IR. And I actually, to your point, the way I even found out about this stuff was I basically wandered into a session at SIR back in, it must've been 2018, I think. And it was, you know, MSK and William Lee, another one of uh, Sean Tutton's protégés was presenting some of the cases from MCW. And I was just like, what the heck? This is the most amazing stuff I've ever seen. It's the definition of future of medicine and just being minimally invasive. And I look around and there's like 12 people in the room. And to your point, Tony, most of the same people. I was, prob I was probably there. Probably. Yeah, probably. And then, you know, and that's even an international crowd. You know, we got Alexis Kalikas at these events and stuff like that. And it's still, as, as Jack Jennings called it, kind of the bone club. I like to see the bone club get a little bit bigger, but I really appreciate the stuff you threw in there about kind of practice building and setting realistic expectations about, okay, you start with, you know, an RF and then you build toward the more complex things. And obviously the way to do that is with collaborating with an orthopedic oncologist. So Tony, we've talked a lot about the metastatic disease component of this and where that partnership comes in. I do want to single you out for a moment and mentioned sacral fractures and sacroplasty a moment ago. I do want to talk about this because I know you and I agree that sacral fractures are extremely underdiagnosed and even more poorly treated. And this is a huge challenge to get out there. And yet it's one where interventional radiologists are just designed to drop in to their communities and be like, hey, you have these patients, I can treat them for you. But how have you gone about that? That's a massive challenge to get out there to a single primary care doctor to educate them about this and then to build up a more consistent referral base. How have you gone about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I would echo your your sentiment on sacral insufficiency fractures. I mean, the plug I would give to treating these fractures is when you have a vertebral compression fracture, you treat those patients and they do great and you save lives. And we know that based on good data. And there's a ton of data about vertebral augmentation. In my anecdotal experience on sacroplasty, the pain and functional responses you get from treating a sacral fracture vastly exceed those of a vertebral compression fracture because it's kind of a pure bone pain that they have. And so by providing stability to these patients with osteoporotic fractures of their sacrum, I mean, these fractures lead to disability and institutionalization at a much higher rate than vertebral compression fractures do. Patients will go from functional and ambulatory to essentially bed bound fast with these fractures. And so the benefit of treating these patients is just blatantly obvious. I think the limitation to treating these, these fractures is I think the fluoroscopic landmarks are just not as well defined. And so interventionalists find this to be a scary procedure and they, the nerves are not like at the back as they are in the vertebral cases. You know, you're not putting cement into a nicely shaped box. You're, it's a weird kind of curvy type of structure that I think is just, there's a little bit of a learning curve there. And I think there's a big impediment. There's a big negative inertia to getting this started, not because the referrals are hard to get, but because the interventionalist is a little hesitant to go get those referrals. The referrals come from the same individuals. So like in my own practice, my practice is about 50% outpatient lab and 50% in, in hospital. So the way that I started with these is I went to the orthopedic spine and the neurosurgeons who take spine call in the hospital because patients are going to show up to the emergency room and they're going to have sacral fractures. And those surgeons, they do not treat those fractures. No one treats sacral fractures. And so what those patients get is they get a, oh, why don't you do some bed rest and we'll give you some pain medicine and hopefully this thing gets better. And you're going to get a weight bearing as tolerated on that patient. And then they will, some of them do better and some of them become institutionalized and some of them become disabled because they end up with an anterior ring fracture and a frankly unstable pelvis. So I went to the, to the spine surgeons in my institution and I said, Hey, so let's treat these patients 
And if they're disabled and you, they're admitted for pain, narcotic pain medication, I would be happy to see them and we can treat them. And so I get inpatient referrals for sacral augmentation on those patients. And then I don't know how other uh, interventionalists go about getting kyphoplasty consults, but I do it by going and speaking to individual physicians. I'm really fortunate to be in a, in a group that provides me with some people who will do outreach. They will do marketing for me. So I am able to be in physicians' offices when I'm not in physicians' offices with people who are usually more personable than I am. And they're able to outreach to these primary care doctors when I'm seeing patients. So I, that's an incredible benefit that I have for being part of a great group. But if that's not you, if you're an individual who's in a smaller practice, then the impetus is on you to go to those doctors and say, look, when you're marketing kyphoplasty, right? Because in addition to those kyphoplasty patients, if a patient has a sacral fracture, most primary care doctors do not believe there is an option for those patients. And so those patients, you need to educate. It's no different than when Danny and I were discussing pelvic fixation for metastatic disease, that there's just a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding that we are able to make these patients better with a minimally invasive procedure. Sacroplasty is that. And to kind of go back to what Danny and I do, Danny and I actually, once you start doing sacroplasty, and, I, and I'm sure that this is evident to you, once you start doing sacroplasty, you start to kind of analyze, you start to realize that not every... Similar to in vertebral fractures, when you're thinking about doing a spine jack, right? Are we talking about a, a magral A1.2 fracture or are we talking about a magral A3.2 fracture, right? Is it a burst fracture? Is it a, a wedge compression fracture? You know, not every spine fracture is the same and sometimes requires different, different treatment. Well, in the sacrum, the same rule applies. I mean, is this a standard Ehler fracture? a so-called adenis one or whatever, whatever classification you want to use. None of them are particularly helpful to guide treatment. Or is this an obturator ring fracture with an associated posterior ailer fracture, meaning that the pelvis is unstable, both front and back? Maybe a sacroplasty is not what the patient needs. Maybe they need fixation. And so again, using, using my, the benefit of my superpower, which is Danny Lerman, I'm able to provide a patient who has a more substantial sacral fracture, maybe they've fractured and they have a displaced, they're going to go, go on to a spinal pelvic dissociation. We can do a true orthopedic fixation in those patients and provide them a long-term stability versus, versus just sacroplasty alone. That's fantastic. It sounds like the oncologic part, which was the, obviously the genesis of the collaboration has also brought some fruits for treating patients with osteoporosis, which of course we know are just omnipresent. And in speaking with Dr. Beal on a recent episode a few months ago, he talked about kind of the same issue is that uh, a lot of these patients with osteoporosis and some who are like post-surgical with a lot of iliac bone graft donor site harvesting have all these very bad issues. And then so just injecting cement is really not the best solution there. And so he called it kind of the rebar and cement approach is, you know, using the screws when necessary to build this solid construct, which again, just getting back to the point earlier, cement is great for compression and not good for tension. And so having an understanding of that biomechanics, again, I just love how that collaboration between the two of you allows you both to think about the problems differently and think about, okay, we're not going to do asacroplasty. We're going to treat this patient's pelvic fractures by any means and the best means necessary. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your original point, I mean, I think looking back on a lot of the cases that I did years ago, I would do those differently today, but that's, that's the progression of a practice. Right. And so, I mean, I think individuals, if you're in an underserved area where people are not, where this therapy is not available, where you don't have anybody that does sacroplasty, do sacroplasty and start that practice. There's a lot of resources out there to learn how to do it. You can contact, most of the time you can contact your device rep and they'll have, they can get you set up with a class or something like that. And, and you can learn to do it hands-on with a cadaver or something, and you can get comfortable before you treat a patient. But I think, you know, for any of us who have a passion for this field, which is musculoskeletal intervention and, you know, particularly musculoskeletal interventional oncology. And, you know, fortunately things like musculoskeletal embolization are kind of hot topics right now in the SIR. And treating arthritis is becoming popular because we're using an OG method of embolization to treat a new thing, right? And it's exciting. 
and it reimburses well, and it has all of the things that interventionalists get excited about. Well, once you start seeing these patient populations and you see the, the kid who gets left out, which is the patient with a sacral fracture or the patient with cancer and, and the instability, we as interventionalists, it is in our DNA to figure something out for those patients. And, and so we're in that process. And so I think as the field grows, that those eight people will become 11 people and then it'll become 13. And then, you know, Jack Jennings will start to not recognize people in the room, which will be, <laughs> that'll be exciting. And ultimately, I think that the field will blossom really nicely because there's just so much, there's so much work out there that just has an unbelievably instantaneous benefit for patients for function and mobility. Could not have said it any better. I agree completely. Beautifully said, and I look forward to the growth of the Bone Club from 8 to 11 to 13 over the years. But in all honesty, I know that there is a lot of interest about this among my peer group and then also the younger students. I think every kind of generation that comes through IR that kind of finds out about it in med school, they have a different idea of what it is, you know. So what I got excited about five years ago, however long that was, applying to residency, that's different than what the kids are seeing nowadays. I mean, five years ago, we weren't doing anything like percutaneous AV fistulas. PE interventions weren't even anywhere close to where they are right now. And then to say nothing about all the stuff that I obviously find very interesting now, every generation, it's kind of moving. And so I think the interest is getting out there, I think, and I hope that people are getting excited about it. And like you said, the, the story of being interested in ortho in med school, but ultimately finding IR, it's very common. And I think, there, I think there's reasons for that, but I feel like that common interest is going to continue to blossom over the years. And I really look forward to that. So tell us about the current goals on the practice. What are the problems that you're really looking to address or the changes you're looking to make as you continue this practice? Yeah, Tony hit on it. Number one is referrals. And that comes from just educating the community, right? So everybody who's out practicing medicine now trained at a time where these procedures were not being done, right? So when you have a new procedure, new option, it's hard to have providers change their paradigm of management for these patients. So we've been doing a lot of education in the region, mostly discuss talking about this with our radiation oncology colleagues because MedOnc sends these patients to Radonc and Radonc kind of gets stuck with them. So every radiation oncology provider we have spoken to has said, oh yes, I have that patient and it is so difficult. Or yes, they all have people on top of their head that they, that they haven't been able to make better because they have pathologic fractures and radiation kills the tumor, but does not heal the bone. So that's number one. Number two is like any other new procedure, we've cobbled together our instrumentation for this. Nothing's designed for this procedure. And I would say in some ways, Tony and I are working to try to improve that. There's other companies that are working on it too. So I think that's a major avenue for improvement as far as just having instrumentation that's actually designed for the pelvis. Because some of the stuff from IR is designed mostly for spine. You know, a lot of what the toys Tony's brought to it has been borrowed from kyphoplasty. And just the soft tissue envelope around the pelvis versus the lumbar spine is usually wildly different. And so I would say those are the two kind of big things that I could see improvements on. We've made dramatic improvements on the actual technique, the hands-on stuff. I think we've made good strides with, as I'm sure most centers around the country that are doing this. You know, we've been able to do it in a collaborative environment out of academia, which has been a total thrill because we get to be the ones doing it. My practice is a very unusual practice where it's a kind of a multi-D limb salvage group that's not based in an academic center. So we're used to kind of the hospital system is used to supporting things like this that are a little outside of the box. And that has been helpful from a practice management and kind of referral perspective, outreach perspective. Fantastic. Tony, any additional thoughts on the current goals? Yeah, I mean, I think Danny's exactly right. I mean, the education of providers, I think, I mean, the biggest, if MedOncs could read CTs, we'd be golden because they would understand what that pain is coming from, right? They'd say, oh, there's a lytic lesion in the acetabulum. Send them to Danny and Tony. It'll be, it'll be perfect. But the problem is, is that people read radiology reports and a lot of times radiology reports on somebody who has, it'll say progressive metastatic disease in the bones. And that doesn't help anybody. And so then it falls to the radiation oncologist where they somehow find us eventually. So there's, there's a big gap in understanding between the images that are produced on these patients who get routine follow-up oncologic imaging and what's actually going to help them from a functional and palliative standpoint. And so 
educating providers that, hey, if you've got this patient that was functional and now they're not, and you know, the radiation oncologists, they understand imaging. So they, we have found them to be an incredibly important partner in building this. And obviously we need them for local disease control in all these patients. It comes back to solving a problem that they couldn't solve. So it's like, it comes back to having a need and that's the key, just as a clinical need. That's exactly right. I mean, these, once the radiation oncologists have provided their treatment and the patient's not better, then we're providing a benefit to them because obviously it's part of the multidisciplinary management of these patients that we can, we can provide an assist there. The materials is huge. You know, like I said, I, the screws and cement, we've dabbled in using polymer-based uh, fixation for the pelvis where you can actually kind of bend it around corners a little bit. That's been very interesting to see how different materials can perform in the pelvis. That's a trauma-based device, Illuminos. And using different materials in these patients, it's also, you know, every case, it, we're essentially creating a bespoke construct for all these patients because everybody's disease and everybody's lysis and everybody's tumor is different. And so, you know, one that performed, you know, a patient that has like this spectacular functional outcome using a certain construct, another patient may have a little bit more of a ho-hum outcome. I mean, I would say that the, the, the majority of patients that we treat do better, but some do unbelievably well and some do less well than I wish. And I don't, I don't know that we understand that well yet on how that's going to turn out. And so there's so much really interesting work to be done in this space. So my goal is to just continue getting these referrals, continue treating these patients. Cause I feel like I learn from Danny on every one of these cases. And I, and hopefully, hopefully he learns from me on a very, very limited and periodic basis. Fantastic. And, and we look forward to the advancement of this field with y'all as the private practice laboratory for testing out the real world application of these futuristic techniques. And with that, I want to thank you both so much for your time. This has been a fantastic discussion. And I would just like to ask any, any final words before we end? No, I think thanks for the opportunity of kind of getting this out there and continue to talk about it. I mean, this is exciting for everybody who's been involved in it. I speak about this with colleagues at different places throughout the country, and this is what gets everybody amped about it. Like you said, you walked into a room and there were 12 people and you were like, wow, this is like the future of medicine. And there's probably like 10 of us, if that, as much we get together in our society and say, this is what's going on. But, you know, the tide is turning. People are getting into it. So it takes this early enthusiasm to make that happen. I've really enjoyed this discussion. I mean, I think ultimately there's a ton of opportunity for trainees. I think there's, again, a big, a big shout out and an eternal thank you to Sean Tutton. William Lee was an influence on me and all those guys, you know, Jack Jennings and company who, who have really innovated and paved a way for people like me to come in and have a little bit of imposter syndrome as I do these procedures, thinking I grew my hair out to look like Sean a little bit and everything. And I love piggybacking off of their innovation and hopefully providing patients with ultimately a benefit and maybe, maybe advancing us a little bit farther than we were before and hoping that the guys that come beyond that Sean is still training <laughs> will be smarter than me and think of a better way than I'm doing it. So it's an exciting field. And I think, you know, it's, it's very rare, I think in medicine that you get to be part of true innovation. And I feel musculoskeletal IO, that's where we are. I mean, it's the wild West and we get to be MacGyver in figuring out exactly how to take care of these cases. And I tell you, there's nothing more gratifying than what I get to do with these patients. So, I mean, I love traditional IR, but this is just the, the frontier and there's just such an excitement that comes with making advances and feeling like I've gathered a little bit of new understanding in this space. So yeah, I would, I would say anybody who has any, even the slightest inclination, seek out somebody who's doing this and, and, and learn it. Absolutely. Thank you for all those words. And I think that that's a great place for us to end as we reflect on the IR and ortho IR as the frontier of medicine. That being said, we'll definitely need to have you both back on the show at some point in the future to report on the Wild West and how things are progressing. And so, again, I want to thank you both for your time. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at 
at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.